Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. We're back. Man, we're in the latter part of Revelation. Revelation 15 and 16. Look at this. It, like the yeah, scale is tilted. Yeah. We're flying. Yeah. We're, we're closer yeah. to the end than we are. We were to the beginning. So that's good. But we're going to talk about the seven bowls in, of chapter 15 and 16. There's tons going on here. Where's a good place to start? Again, it's just so important, I think, to keep in mind um, the structure. We're just talking offline for a second. We want to run to Revelation 16 and get to Armageddon, which is the sixth uh, of the bowls. And you just can't do that without understanding the structure, because John's giving us an indication of the structure, what he's trying to say. And he's been very careful at organizing it. And you're going to get annoyed. You might not, Vinny, but others, everyone else, you might too. I, I know you well enough. I usually but do. As, as we go through the next number of chapters, because I'm going to constantly say, hey, this word occurs twice only in these two passages. This word occurs four times only in these two passages, because John's using those verbal repetitions to link the passages together. And it's critical to understand what's going on. So we have to understand uh, in terms of uh, this text, what's actually happening in the larger text. So let's do this. We want to jump into the seven bowls of chapter 16. We're not going to make it there most likely. Let's start by reading chapter 15 verses one through eight. And then maybe we'll just remind ourselves of the structure and organization of, of what's going on. So if you want to read 15, one through eight. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witnesses in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with gold sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is, right. uh, there's a lot going on here. Right? It is. seems like there's Old Testament stuff happening. What do we do with this? Yeah, there is. And it's so easy to skip this stuff and just jump into the seven bowls. Okay, cool. Now mm -hmm. let's narrate the yep. seven bowls. But if you do, you're not going to understand what the seven bowls are actually trying to say. So we have to grap grapple with this passage. Remember, John's trying to paint a picture for us. He's not giving us a historical description of the things that happen, like A happens, then B happens, then C happens. Mm -hmm. Instead, he's giving it in story form. And so it's important to understand how the story is unfolding. So what we have in chapter 15, 1 through 16, 20, is the third series of sevens. The seven seals was the first series in chapter 6 and then the beginning of chapter 8. The second series was the seven trumpets, which is chapter eight and nine, and then the end of chapter 11. And then the third series now of sevens is the seven bulls. The way the story is unfolding is the seven seals affected one fourth of the people, and one fourth of had effects on one fourth. The seven trumpets had an effect upon one third, although mm -hmm. they affected the land, the sea, the rivers, and, the, and, and then the heavens. 
The seven bowls are not going to affect everything. So there's another indication that we have not only another series of sevens, but the sevens are progressing from one-fourth to one-third to everything. And there's speculation where the seven thunders in the middle of that, where they one-half, perhaps. But what we have then in the first series of sevens, seven seals, Jesus breaks the seven seals. In the first four seals, destruction happens upon humanity. And I argue that destruction is what humanity does, what, what human rulers do when they're in power, because God's delaying the answer to the prayers of the saints, which we'll address later on, saying, not yet, I'm not bringing the end yet. And while I delay the end, human rulers stay in power, and here's what they do. They bring false teaching, war, famine, uh, violence, and ultimately death. Then the second account was the seven trumpets, beginning of chapter 8 through all of 8 and through all of chapter 9, and of course, the end of chapter 11. Uh, and the first four trumpets brought destruction upon the four parts of creation, the land in the first trumpet, the sea in the second trumpet, the fresh waters in the third trumpet, and then the sun, moon, and the stars in the fourth. In both of these, I think what we have is what happens when human, human, humanity is in power. Now, it's critical to understand that the seven seals and the seven trumpets re represent this delay in God's bringing justice. The question was, how long, O Lord? And the answer was not yet. And then what we had in the middle of each of those series, at the end of the sixth seal and before the seventh, and at the end of the sixth trumpet and before the seventh, we had this interlude, which we described as a pause in the narrative. And in both the interludes, John depicts the people of God and says, hey, guys, don't worry about it. I know you're having to endure what's going on here in the effects of the seals and the effects of the trumpets. But it's okay because with seven seals, you've been sealed by God, so you're divinely protected to be able to endure and you can overcome. And in the seven trumpets, you had you were measured and divinely protected. And therefore, God's protections around you, you can endure, you have to overcome. And as we've discussed before, this is where Matthew 6 comes in. Why do you worry about food? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We overcome and that costs us food and security and power and privilege in the world but we inherit the kingdom of God at the end of the day. Now, there's two things then that are indicating the delay in God's, of God's answer to the prayers of the saints in terms of this delay. The first was that the delay was giving an opportunity for the nations to repent. Okay. And we but, saw but that, of course. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it's not just the nations, though, because it's also encouraging the church to repent. And we see this in the seven exactly. messages in chapters two and three. And this goes along with what we talked about when we first started the series, which was, there's three different genres happening here. It's an apocalypse that's also a letter that's also a prophecy. And that's what the prophets do. They, they're they covenant enforcers. They're calling right. the people of God to repentance and to remain faithful. Yeah, exactly. So the churches, especially the seven messages, and so you see this prophetess Jezebel who mm -hmm. call it's repent, the church in Sardis. Remember, therefore, what you've heard what you've heard and, and received, and, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place. So you have these seven messages that are definitely focusing on repent, the kingdom of God's coming because those were the churches that were compromising or mm -hmm. threatening to, or the temptation to compromise was there for the Christians. So they might compromise and give in to the beast for security, for food, comfort, power, and, and allegiance. But at the same time, the delay in the answer to the prayers of the saints not only allowed time for the church to compromise and therefore need to repent, but it was designed so that the nations could be brought to repentance. Yeah. And before I rudely interrupted with that brilliant point, you said the first point was, like you just said, for the nations, the opportunity to repent, but the delay meant a second thing. So what's the second thing? So the second thing is what we actually alluded to, and that is that the delay is in order that the people of God might persevere as faithful witnesses. Hmm. 
faithful, loving, sacrificial witnesses, because what we see is that just simply God delaying doesn't bring repentance. And that's explicit at the end of chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Those who are not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. So they don't repent just because they see famine and death and destruction going, hey, the nations of the world really aren't doing much help for us. Maybe let's turn to God and see if his plan works better. That doesn't bring them to repentance. What brings them to repentance is the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. And that was chapter 11, the the two witnesses. So what that means then is the delay means that the people of God have to persevere because it's a time of suffering for them. And as we've discussed, that's how the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God comes with Jesus dying on the cross for us and establishing his kingdom. And then it comes because we then continue to carry out the the way of Jesus by cross-bearing love. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And we lay down our lives for the nations, and that's the means by which the nations repent. And so at the end of the two witnesses account, uh, it says uh, those who were spared basically gave glory to the, uh, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Ah, Mm. they repented. So that's our answer. Okay. So when we're looking at that first chunk of chapter 15 that we just saw, verses mm-hmm. one through eight, it's not actually explaining the seven bowls. Is this like the prelude or the intro yeah. to the seven bowls? It is. And it's a very important introduction. We know that it's an introduction to the bowls because chapter 15, verse one, John begins with, and I saw. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you go to chapter 16, verse one, and then I heard. Mm. Ah, his Which is something he hearing. does this a lot throughout the book. He hears and sees. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we think they're two different things, but they're not. He heard about the lion, but then he saw a lamb. He heard about 144,000, but then mm-hmm. he saw a great multitude. And we realize, oh, we're supposed to read these in light of one another. And they're complimentary. Would it matter the order? Because normally we hear, then we hear this, the sound of one uh, of the trumpets. And then we see that it's him in the middle of the church in chapter one. I'm quoting it wrong, right? Yeah. You even see it there, right? Because normally yeah, you hear, yeah. then you see, but now we see, then we hear. Yeah. So in this instance, it's seeing and then hearing. Typically, it's hearing and then seeing. And the order does not necessarily matter at all. What you have to do is look at the context and go, did he intend that to be used as a literary feature of hearing and seeing or not, or seeing and hearing? Well, and I'd say the important thing is you mentioned it's a literary device. So oftentimes when we use then phrases... Like yeah. on Saturday, I cleaned out my car and then I did the dishes and then I ran errands. Those all mm-hmm. seem like isolated instances where this is right. not what's happening. When he's saying, then I did this, or I saw this or heard this, we read these together. He's not saying I'm done exactly. with this one thing exactly. and now I'm going yeah. on to the other. And, and that's why John does this throughout the book. That's correct. So that tells us that there's not a transition between one section and another section. Mm-hmm. These two sections are to be read together or two units yeah. to be read in light of one another. That's right. So there's another indication though also, and that is this. In chapter 11, verse 19, it says, The temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, and a hailstorm. So what we saw then was, oh, this is the end of the seventh trumpet. The temple of God is in heaven is opened. We've reached the end. And then we go to chapter 15, verse 5, and guess what we see again? And that is, after these things I look, and the temple, the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Ah, 11.19 and 15.5 kind of form this inclusio of what I stopped here, I'm resuming here, which tells us chapters 12, 13, and 14 are a parenthesis event. And that's what we've discussed. And that is chapter 11, the story was being narrated. The two witnesses come and they bring repentance. The nations are repentant. The seventh trumpet says, okay, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. There's no more delay. We're done, but we're not done. 
And we're done is happens in chapters 15 and 16. The seven bowls bring us to the end. It, it even says in chapter 16, at the beginning of the seventh bowl, it says, a loud voice from the, from the throne came out and said, it is done. Ah, there we go. So we know that we're at the end, which means that inclusio, and what I mean by that is the repetition of the temple of God in heaven was open in 1119, and the temple of God in heaven was open in 155, means that what happened in the middle, chapters 12, 13, and 14, was this parenthesis that said, hey, let me pause the narrative for a second and give you more detail about uh, what's going on. Okay. Since we are getting further and further into the book, and we've spent so many episodes really yeah. getting into the weeds on a lot of details. Could we just maybe go back and, and do a quick tweet <laughs> in tweet form of every chapter? We already talked about how chapters two and three are these seven messages. Chapter one is his introduction. Chapter four is when that next scene happens. I think you call it in terms of like the next section. So what, what's been happening so far in the book? Okay. So let's just focus simply on the second scene of the second story that started in chapter four. And we'll go over this more as we proceed, because again, the, the, the structure is so critical, especially for the millennium passage and for all these great topics that we have mm -hmm. and understand what's going on. And John's made it pretty clear, although it's been really hard for people to see. That's ironic. But in chapter four, mm -hmm. John's taken up into heaven and he sees God sitting on a throne. He's being worshiped by all these beings around him. And he's worthy of worship because he created all things. And then chapter five, he's got a scroll in his right hand. And oh, who's worthy to open it? Oh, the lion is worthy to open it. He sees a lamb that was slain and the beings worshiping the father say, oh, worthy are you to take the book or the scroll because you were slain. So Jesus is now worthy to take the scroll and he begins to open it. And the seven seals happen. The first six seals happen in chapter six. Then there's an interlude that we already discussed. The people of God are divinely protected so they can overcome and they can be triumphant at the end of the day. Then the seven seals broken in the beginning of chapter eight. And then we think, okay, we should be done now, but no. We want to know what's on the scroll. The whole idea is like, what's on the scroll? We don't find out what's on the scroll. We're told the seven trumpets is another delay. And what we find out in the seven trumpets is the devastation of human rule on to humanity, the seven seals, is also bringing devastation upon the creation, the seven trumpets. Then we get to the interlude in, ten, in chapters 10 and 11. Uh, and the inter interlude is John eats the scroll, go prophesy. Here's where the contents of the scroll are. Oh, the answer for the redemption of the nations is the two witnesses, they prophesy, they fulfill their testimony, and they're killed. And then in 12, 13, and 14, we have this parenthesis that describes, hey, let me give you more detail about the war that happens against the two witnesses. And the details are, this war, it's not like some one-off thing. It's what the devil's been doing since the beginning of creation. He stood before the woman, which is, you can say Israel, but the people of God. He tried to devour the child, the Jesus child. Child was snatched up to God. Satan's thrown out of heaven, and he goes, pursues the woman, and he's really angry. It says, because he knows that his time is short. Hmm. And then he tries to devour the woman. He can't do it. The woman's protected by the two wings of a great eagle. So he went after the rest of her offspring, chapter 12, verse 17, who, who bear witness to, to, to Jesus and hold the testimony of uh, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then 13, oh, the beast, the dragon wages war by uh, enlisting the uh, support of two beasts political, religious, and it's more complicated than that, but we discussed that in great detail. And then 14 brings us to the climax of the, the final judgment, and now we're ready for the final judgment, and that's what 15 and 16 are, gonna, are, they, are then going to narrate is the final judgment. Okay. So 
the seven bowls in chapter 16 that's part of the final judgment, which is interesting because yes. we still have, we finish out chapter 16, you still have 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. You, know, you have a handful of chapters left and there's that's more right. stuff that seems to happen. How many that's final right. judgments? Are this like the end of the movie Top Gun, the first one. There's like five different endings on that movie. They could have ended all these different places. That's the way the book of Revelation reads. <laughs> that's actually a very perceptive too. And it's something that's important to understand that the end is listed for us at the end of the seventh seal, at the end of the seventh trumpet, and now at the end of the seventh bowl. Mm -hmm. And then we're not done. So we, we have mm -hmm. more to discuss. So uh, that's actually absolutely what, what's going on now. Okay. In the series of seven seals and the, the seven trumpets, you've noted that they were connected to the throne room scene, which is what we saw in chapters four and five, where God, the ones he did on the throne and the lamb are worshiped by all creation. Do you have the same kind of connection for the seven bowls? Yes, and very important. 15 verse 2, he says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Guess what? The sea of glass only occurs twice in the entire book of Revelation, and mm -hmm. the other occurrence is before the throne in chapter 4 verse 6. Also, at the center of this account of the seven bowls are the seven angels who are given seven bowls. So you, saw that you read that in chapter 15 verse 7. He says, I saw... One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. The reference to the four living creatures reminds the throne room scene. But these seven angels saw the seven golden bowls. Remember, the golden bowls most certainly refer back to what the four living creatures and the 24 elders had in chapter 5, verse 8. In chapter 5, verse 8, it says, uh, 5, verse 7, I'll start there. When Jesus, or the Lamb, came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are mm -hmm. the prayers of the saints. Mm -hmm. So when we go to chapter 15, notice that one of the four living creatures in verse seven gave to the seven angels the seven golden bowls. It's got to be the same bowls. Mm -hmm. the, seven, the same bowls that the four living creatures had are now given to these seven angels. That's critical because we know the seven bowls were full of incense and their incense is the prayers of the saints. So certainly we have this connection to the prayers of the saints there. And we discussed, I won't get into detail now, but you had this overlapping in chapter eight, verses three, four, and the beginning of five, where the seven trumpets, seven seals are overlapping with the prayers of the saints. And I think that's very critical to understand that, that the seven bowls are also the answer to the prayers of the saints. Got it. As I'm reading that in verse eight of chapter 15, it says, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. That smoke isn't smoke from the incense. This is a different thing, right? I'm imagining this incense, you go to somewhere and it creates the smoke, but that's a different smoke, right? I'd have to think about that because you do have a different smoke. Mm -hmm. My first intuition is that it's not, that it's the yeah. same because I think you have smoke let me look it up here. In chapter 8. Uh, yeah. The smoke of the incense in chapter 8, verse 4. Yeah. Uh, so so it, the prayers of the immediate, the smoke of the incense. Because I immediately wanted to connect that. But then it says the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and his power. Yeah. So it's like, okay, how, they're, they're using the smoke imagery, but it seems to be a little different. I, I think we have to connect the glory of God and his power to the smoke of the incense. So in other words, God's going to manifest his glory. This, I'm just speaking off the top of my head sure. here right now. I think we're associating the glory of God with his answer to the prayers of the saints. Okay. okay. God's answering their prayers and the smoke went up 
and now it's the smoke from the glory of God in answer to the prayers of the saints. That's the way I would answer it right now. I'd have to think about it some more. I'm Stay assuming it's not covered week. in the forthcoming commentary then, I'm assuming. That doesn't mean I remember it. <laughs> I'd actually, one of the places I would go would be to go back to my commentary and say, did I address this or not? <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yep, uh, yep, we're, yep. we're both A to D, and it's, I don't remember what's in my own book. I, exactly. And I can tell you stories about that too. Oh, I did yep. talk about that. And I have stories. Oh, okay. the stories we could tell. Yes. So. Sometimes uh, I read my commentary, I'm like, hey, that's really good. <laughs> so <laughs> I should have thought of that before. Oh, we'll this have, is my book. I did think about that. We'll have that. a different podcast for the stories that we should tell. You have to pay extra on the Patreon for that one. Uh, well, um, it's called Living with ADD. Yeah, so, uh, The Struggle by is Robin, Real. By Robin Vinny. Yeah. Yes. The, the, yeah. There you go. The subtitle is The Struggle is Real. The Struggle so. is Real. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Going back to the, the seven bowls then, do they represent God's divine wrath? It's obviously, it says that they're full of the wrath of God. Yes, but, so this becomes one of the big issues. So what I've been arguing all along is that we shouldn't look at the seals and trumpets in particular as God's wrath upon the world trying to get them to repent. Okay. You have someone like Tremper Longman, who's a wonderful scholar, he's been on the podcast before, who wrote a commentary in the book of Revelation. Now, Tremper's an Old Testament scholar, and actually his commentary is really helpful in so many ways, because mm-hmm. I think his commentary is titled Reading Revelation Through Old Testament Eyes. Mm-hmm. So he's coming, okay, I'm reading this text, and I'm just seeing all these Old Testament allusions here and there, and it's great because he's seeing things that a New Testament scholar wouldn't see. But in the Old Testament, God is certainly a God of wrath. He inflicts plagues on Egypt. Egypt is the paradigm, as we discussed before, for understanding the seals and the trumpets and even the bull, or at least the trumpets and the bulls. So Lawman brings that, if I can say the word baggage, I don't mean that in a bad way. He brings yeah, that yeah. To, the, to the stage. And so his conclusion is, oh, here we go. This is definitely God's divine judgment and God's a God of wrath. And he argues actually strongly those who argue that Revelation does not have wrath and violence in it, I'm sorry, this is a violent text. He even wrote a book called God is a Warrior, and he does a great mm-hmm. job. And he sees Jesus riding a horse as God as a warrior. And I'm like, yes, you're right. But the question is, how does he wage war? Mm. And so he wages war with the sword of his mouth. It's not with violence. The blood in his garment in Revelation 19 is not his own blood, is his own blood, not the blood of his enemies. I think he's waging war through love and through dying. And I would argue that's certainly what the New Testament tells us. Now, do we have a conflict between the old and the new? I don't think either one of us would say that we do. I think the New Testament is clearly revealing that the way God operates is through love, whereas the way the nations operate is through violence. So I would respond by saying, yeah, the bowls are indeed the wrath of God, but they're also full of the prayers of the saints. Mm-hmm. And so they're being poured out as God's wrath, but maybe it's a better way of saying he's pouring out his justice because it's the prayers of the saints. I know it's, it's justice and wrath can go together, and you can decide to look at that as wrath, especially the person who suffers it is going to look at that as wrath. 
but the people that were oppressed have now brought been just have now brought justice and that's why it's good news to the poor mm-hmm. the gospel is good news to the poor it's not necessarily good news to rome unless you become poor also and i so i think there's a nuance there so i would argue a little bit that i have no problem reading the seven bowls as god's wrath his violence it's not the same as the seals and the trumpets he's not doing it to bring them to repentance i'm going to punish you he's punishing them no doubt about it but it's also the final judgment and the final judgment is an act of justice and you can even use the word vengeance if you want wrath if you if you want that's fine but i think we'll also nuance that also as we go through the seven trumpets in our next episode yeah. Would you say Longman's view, is that the predominant view or is there a predominant scholarly view on understanding that? I'd say that most scholars, if not all scholars besides myself, are going to read Longman and go, yeah, I think he's pretty much correct. Mm-hmm. I'm offering a reading that I think is extremely faithful to the text. I think I'm seeing things that other scholars haven't noticed before, particularly the way he links passages here and there by use of the verbs, a, a verbal uh, linkage, not necessarily verbs, but could be a noun, and by his imagery. And the structure, which is my training actually is in structural analysis and, and discourse analysis. So I'm looking at it like, hey, guys, we've got this new field of understanding how texts are arranged, and let's apply it here. I think we've missed a few things, but it's really obvious that John's doing this. And then using this biblical theology of the New Testament, especially this theology of of love. And it'd be interesting to see how my thesis is received. We're not going to know that answer for 10 years. Mm -hmm. If I'm right, then it's going to start making some headway in the scholarly world. If I'm wrong, it just won't get addressed because I'll just Mm -hmm. dismiss that. So we'll see. So maybe there'll be an answer in 10 years or 25 years or after I'm dead. (laughs) <laughs> but but we'll see. So I think the answer to the question, Vinny, is, yeah, I think most scholars are going to agree. Let me add another anecdote. When I was presenting my thesis verbally to, to a colleague of mine in the book of Revelation Studies, he's like, how did you figure that out with the trumpets? I know how the seals work, but I can't figure out how to do this with the trumpets. And, I, and we might have him on a podcast. We'll see how he responds. But, but when we have these guys on the podcast, we're not like, hey, here's Rob's thesis. What is your response yeah. to it? We're simply saying, yeah. what's your thesis? Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a lot of scholars come on that I'm silently not going to be agreeing with, per se, on some of their things or what they're saying. I do think when it comes to the seven seals, most scholars are agreeing with me now. When it comes to the seven trumpets, they're not agreeing with me very much, especially when you like the fact that the trumpets and the bowls seem to be read together. I don't think they should be. I think we have something else going on, but that's another issue. But if you read the seals and the trumpets and the bowls together, and the bowls are explicitly said to be the wrath of God, then you go back to the trumpets and go, okay, this is the wrath of God also. I'm like, that's not what's happening. So, mm. Okay. Yeah. To clarify, the seven bowls, they don't relate to the prayers of the saints in the same way oh, I'm sorry. that the seven yeah. seals and the seven trumpets did. That's correct. I'm sorry. I apologize. They're almost cutting okay. out. Not quite. The seven seals and seven trumpets both functioned as a response to the prayers of the saints, but the response was there's going to be a delay. Okay. The seven bowls, the cry for justice is now being answered. And we'll see this, especially as we go through the, the, the seven bowls in chapter 16, the bowls are being poured out. Now, your mm-hmm. translations are really critical here. And actually, and let's go ahead and look at it. We'll, we'll remind ourselves of this when we do chapter 16 in our next week. Chapter yeah. 16, verse 5. And this is also another key theme that I'll just alert you to now that we'll talk about more as we, as we proceed. One of the key themes that I'm learning to, to you now is the justice of God. So in chapter 16, verse 5, 
it says, one of the angels of the water says, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you've judged these things. It sounds like God's doing all these things. That, that doesn't sound too godly. And the angels say, hey, no, you are actually righteous in doing this. And verse 6 is very critical that you read the Greek text carefully. It says, because they have poured out. Now, the New American Standard says that, but most translations don't say poured out there. It says, for they have poured out the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. The point well, is. Because I'm, I'm reading ESV and NRSV, and they both, they both read, they have shed the blood of the saints. That's right. Or slain. Exactly. The, okay. The, the Greek is the exact same word. Each of the bowls are poured out, and it's the same word in the Greek text. So I'm, let me let's see if I can look at it here. And the Greek text here, chapter 16, let's see. Verse 2, the first angel poured out his bowl. Verse hmm. 3, poured out his bowl. Verse 6, if you're looking at the Greek text, it's the same word. The point of that is that God's bowls are being poured out of his wrath because you poured out the blood of your saints. Hmm. And notice what it says. In fact, that, that this is indeed the correct way to look at this, which scholars don't miss this at all, even if our translations miss it. Notice what it says in verse 6. They poured out the blood of saints and prophets. And you've given them blood to drink. See, you poured out blood. I'm giving you blood back. It's what I'm they deserve. It, it's emphatically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. they deserve it. Let me look at the mm -hmm. Greek here. The Greek is moderately emphatic because the verb, mm -hmm. Vinny, if you remember from your Greek class and you had that wonderful Greek instructor. He was dreamy. Verbs are, <laughs> what's that? He was dreamy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Let's not go there. Okay. Okay. All right. Cut that. Cut that. Cut that. <laughs> yeah, that's not making the show. Cuts. Cuts. Oh, God. No, I can't even concentrate. All right. <laughs> you can say there's a measure of, of emphasis, but there's a better way of making it emphatic. So I wouldn't argue that it's emphatic here hmm. okay. or overly emphatic. Would you say then that the seven bowls are the final judgment that come upon the nations for how they treated the people of God? That's exactly the point. So it's not merely then being judged for individual sin. It's bigger than that. I think you can not in this passage, it's bigger than that yeah you can yeah, go to yeah. chapter 21 chapter 20 and 21 where you, they're judged by the things that were written in the books sure and you get in the seven messages as well i guess it's chapter 20 and then and it's repeated several times they were judged by the things that were written in the books but you can also then go back to matthew 25 he separates mm -hmm. the sheep and the goats and the, and yes. the judge by how you treated the least of these brothers of mine which is because that's how you treated me so exactly well but what, what i'm saying is that we oftentimes we theologize the text and we read something like this. So we'll read a uh, revelation 15 or 16 and, and we'll see, no, it's still 15. And, and we'll say, okay, they're judged. Obviously then it's because they didn't personally repent for their sins. No, mm -hmm. the text is saying it's the nations who are judged. And it, it seems to be for how they've treated people as a conglomerate, as an aggregate. But then you go to other places where people are treated or they're judged based on how they lived individually. And so it's a yeah. both it's just important to make sure that you're reading the actual text and what's being said there and not merely theologize the reading of the text to assume it's saying something. Yeah. Maybe the way to look at this is like a, the larger umbrella is what we're ultimately judged by is to whom did you give allegiance? Yes. Yeah. That's why I always say the gospel is Jesus is Lord. Now it's more than mm -hmm. that, but it, that's the beginning of it. And the question becomes of all humanity is to whom is your Lord? When you give allegiance to the other powers, those powers use their power to persecute God's people and to oppose the work mm -hmm. of God's kingdom. They make war against the saints. Therefore, judgment on, on to whom do you give allegiance is, how did you treat my people? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot to be said there. 
in terms of the modern American church. I think that's just another longer conversation that we'll continue to have as we proceed. Yeah. It's also a great reminder that the gospel has to be connected first and foremost to the lordship of Jesus and his kingdom, which we just completely lose in evangelical culture. Just the other day I saw a tweet thread that was blown up and I'm in the Calvinist camp, like theologically, but Calvinists, when you tweet out something, Christian, (laughs) but when you, when you tweet out something like Calvinism is the clearest description of the gospel it was something to that effect no it's not calvinism is a way of understanding scripture the clearest form of the gospel is jesus is lord (laughs) exactly when we reduce it down it's reductionistic merely to the order of salvation no that's not the gospel that might be the consequence of the gospel but that's not the content of the gospel yeah yeah while we're on this path for just a second i know we're getting a little bit low on time yeah so understanding that the gospel is about me getting saved and going to heaven when i die Mm -hmm is not the gospel either because mm-hmm. me getting saved and going to heaven when I die is about me yes. and the gospel is about Jesus. And if you want yes. to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So when we sell the gospel, make it attractive with that, that not necessarily inherently a problem, although I don't know how much you make attractive, mm-hmm. go take your up your cross and follow Jesus and deny yeah. yourself and sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's not as attractive as we might think. We make the gospel about personal salvation and having security. I can go to heaven, which I think is there we might very well be undermining the gospel itself, which is about self-denial. So you had noted that the sea of glass occurs only here and in chapter four, verse six, but in four, verse six, John says that the sea of glass is like crystal, but here it's mixed with fire. So that, I don't know, first reading as an English speaking guy, that seems a little ominous. It might even lead you to think we don't have to connect the two. It can't be the same Mm -hmm. sea of glass. And the answer is, it is the same sea of glass. The fact that sea of glass only occurs in these two places is a strong indication that we're to unite them. The problem with it is we're trying to read the things literally. Oh, John's mm. literally in heaven before God's throne, and he sees a literal sea of glass that looked like crystal. If that's the case, then he can't see a sea of glass later on that looks like mm. fire because mm-hmm. they, they can't be the same thing. And the answer is, no, the imagery can transcend itself on the, along the context the sea of glass like crystal in chapter four is because crystal, which is only used twice in the book of Revelation, crystal now, the second time is the river of life in Revelation 22, one was as clear as crystal. Mm -hmm. So we see that's an imagery for the river of life and this imagery of God's providing sustenance, a river that we can drink freely from. You have to pay for it. It's not just for the rich. It's for all people to drink freely from the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. So that's the idea of clearest crystal in chapter four. We know that because it's clearest crystal in chapter 22. But now the context is, oh, they're standing on the sea of glass. Notice that, by the way, they're standing. And what are they doing there? It's judgment. And fire is an, conve- conveys judgment. And so that's mm. the idea of the imagery has the ability to change or morph depending on the context of what John wants to do with the imagery, which he couldn't do if the imagery was actually literally describing an actual literal. And by the way, how are they standing on a sea of glass that's fire and not getting burned up? Oh, they're like, Mm -hmm. no, don't you have to do all that. That, That's not the point. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. Well, in this idea of final judgment, it really makes sense when what 
he uh, he saw that those who had overcome the beast in his image and had the number of his beast, right? It's like yeah. it's these group of people. Exactly. And I don't remember exactly what your translation had said in verse two. It didn't use the word overcome. The New American Center uses the word victorious. I saw those mm. who had been, what did you say in 15.2? 15.2 said, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled fire in those who had conquered in the ESV yeah. and conquered in NRSV. And the New American Center says, had been, been victorious. It is a good translation because the word overcome or conquer, and the context here is, I see these people, they've overcome and they're standing mm -hmm. in the sea of glass. They, they must have already conquered. They're not overcoming now. They mm -hmm. have final victory, conquered, have been victorious. But the reason why I like to translate it as overcome is because I want English readers to say, oh, it's the same word mm -hmm. that the seven messages said, the one who overcomes, the one who overcomes. And oh, and overcoming is not loving your life even when faced with death. And overcoming mm -hmm. is what the lamb did. So we just want to make those connections. And, and that's another connection then with the fact of overcoming. And that is what the what Jesus did in chapter five. Yep. Okay. Why are they holding golden harps? Uh, harps is a symbol of victory after warfare. Hmm. So we see harps in three places. And are we supposed to connect the passages? Probably. In chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders had, had uh, harps uh, and golden bowls full of incense. And then in chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, the 144,000 that had overcome, it, it said they had a voice, was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Uh, and so they're following the Lamb, and they're on Mount Zion. It could be, look forward to the New Jerusalem, and that's where they're at, or it could be they're presently following the Lamb, but they're singing a victorious song. And then here, the context in chapter 15 is pretty clear, and that is the harps of God are a song of victory. Verse 3 it even says, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, uh, and the song of, of the Lamb. And so they, that, when they sing a song in verse 3 and 4, which... I'm, I'm thinking back even to the Psalms and Old Testament passages. Don't they create songs in response to a military victory or uh, as a yeah. way of rejoicing or something like that? Yeah. What's really interesting actually is this, is the song of Moses is Exodus mm -hmm. 15. There's no, no yeah. question about it. And Moses sings the song in Exodus 15 after he comes out of the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. So it's a song of victory and it's a military victory. The Egyptian army was destroyed in the, as the waters came back over the Egyptian army and they're destroyed. So guess what? Military victory. What's interesting is, none of the words of the song refer back to Exodus 15. He talks mm -hmm. about the song of Moses, Exodus 15, but the words don't reflect that. But notice it's also the song of the Lamb. Mm. And so the song of Moses has to be understood in light of the song of the Lamb. And that goes back to what I said, that you can't, as Tremper Longman would like to do, and I respect him greatly, read this in light of Exodus. And it's like, yeah, you can read this in light of Exodus, but you also have to read it in light of the cross. Mm. And that just changes how we read the Exodus story in light of the Jesus story, and that is it's an act of love nonetheless. So it's the song of the Moses and the song of the Lamb, and it's the idea that, and that is that justice is revealed through love. And that's why you're saying it's a love story. Exactly, because the nations use power and violence, and God uses love. Mm, okay. John then goes on to say, he says, after these things I saw in the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened and the seven angels with the seven last plagues then came out of the temple. What's going on here? So this again now goes back to chapter six, verses nine through 11. So the prayers of the saints, what I argued 
was that the prayers of the saints are the prayer of chapter 6, verse 10. How long, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were told to wait a little while. So remember, the seals and trumpets are a delay. Now the prayers are being answered. Remember, the souls were under the altar. And here we go. The altars where God's people are crying out for justice, they're crying out, how long? Now, what's interesting is the word bowl, and this is, John says, I think he's doing this on purpose. The word bowl, well, by itself, there's just the word bowl itself, occurs 12 times. So clearly, the word bowl is connected to the people of God. Remember, the bowls in chapter 5 were full of the prayers of the saints. Mm-hmm. The seven bowls, I know it's the two words together, I know it's like the first bowl, the second bowl, the third bowl, the fourth. Okay, not counting those. Not saying like the seventh bowl, but the seven bowls, referring to them as a group, occurs four times. And the idea of four is completion, fulfillment, totality with regards to creation. The seven bowls represent the fullness of God's answers to the prayers of God's people. That's tw- mm-hmm. the number of bowls is 12. And so that's what's going on. That is, they're crying out for justice. Heaven's open. And guess what? God is answering the prayers of the saints now. Mm-hmm. And, and the prayer is no longer... Uh, so the answer is not, oh, it's going to be a delay. It's no, the time is now. Yep. Yep. We talked about this a few minutes ago, about the yeah. temple being filled with smoke from the glory of God, as we just, we're yeah. just keep working through the text now, but we, we connected the smoke to the incense, but is there anything else you want to expand on in terms of the glory of God and the significance of yeah. it? Yeah. And as I wrote in my commentary, which I now remember, cause I'm looking at my, my notes, <laughs> sorry, sorry, confession it is smoke is a common symbol for the presence of God. So we, a cloud by day yeah. a little bit, uh-huh. even then, but obviously in the book of Isaiah, Uh, verses Mm -hmm. three and four, the whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the the temple was filling with smoke. But again, the word smoke occurs 12 times in the book of Revelation, which connects it with the prayers of God's people or or connects it with God's people. So I think we do associate the smoke of God's glory, of God's presence with the smoke of God's answering the prayers of the saints by the fact that what we said earlier, as well as the fact that the, the word smoke occurs 12 times. I think the key then is there's no more time for intercession. There's no more need to pray to mm-hmm. God for how long, oh Lord. God's answering the prayers of the saints and there's no holding him back. It's interesting though, because as you'd mentioned, Longman, uh, Tremper's reading, is such a great Old Testament scholar and reading the, the New Testament in light of that. It is interesting because when you look at the Exodus account, how many times did God give Egypt, the opportunity to repent yeah. and they didn't 10 times <laughs> with the right, plagues. Right. And then finally God had to give over. So even there, when you have this wrath, that's being poured out on Egypt, yeah. uh, it, it, I read it in that similar way saying, yeah, God pours out his wrath. He gave you guys time to repent and you didn't. So guess what? This is what you earn from that. You have to remember too, the Israelites didn't leave Egypt with only Israelites. There were Egyptians mm-hmm. with them. Correct. So now what we don't know is are those Egyptians that left with them like slaves? Hey, let's take opportunity to get out of here. Or were they uh, people that had repented and became part of the people of Israel? As far as we know, they become part of the people of Israel. They become part yeah. of the tribes. That that could very well be the case also. But yeah, God is giving in his delay time for the people to repent. But mm-hmm. now in chapter 15, there's no more need for delay because the nations have repented. As you go back in the story, chapter 11, they repented. So we're good. Mm. We're done. So next time, we'll get into the seven bowls and look at them uh, in chapter 16. And we'll Mm -hmm. look at the Armageddon passage and we'll touch on the Armageddon passage and a lot of the modern questions that come up. 
But you have to understand as listeners here, we can't fully answer what the Armageddon passage is doing in the text until we look at the war occurring later on in the text. I, I guess we could say it this way. What I'll argue about the Armageddon passage in our next episode, assuming we get through the whole thing in one episode, and we'll do our best. What I'm going to argue Armageddon saying and doing, we'll find further confirmation as we proceed later on in the book. So hmm. I guess we can say, yeah, we are going to give a, an overview of Armageddon, what it means. And I'd say, and hold on, if I haven't convinced you, because later on in the text, it's just going to confirm that. Hmm. So all right, what are your um, thoughts about today? Or oh, go ahead. Well, a I, just a quick thought on Armageddon, how yeah. we might be able to best prepare for that. We bring so much baggage yeah, into yeah, yeah. learning about something like Armageddon because it's a cultural phenomenon. You don't have to be a Christian yeah. and you hear Armageddon's upon us. We know yeah. there's movies called that. It's yeah. a cosmic end of the world type language. Yeah. What are some presuppositions that we should try to shed? And maybe what's even some preparation? Is there anything that we could do going into that study? If I'm listening to this in real time to, to maybe do some theological dialysis and rid myself of maybe some bad presuppositions? Because are there any Old Testament passages that have a background here? Or just what, what, what can I do? I guess what we can do is recognize it's Ezekiel in one sense, mm -hmm. right? But we're going to read Ezekiel the way we like to read Ezekiel. It's recognized that God, so Mark 10, 42 through 45, Mark 10, 42 through 45. My kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. The Gentiles lorded over those in authority, but not so with you. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. God doesn't operate the way the nations do. The way we read Armageddon is like some bloody battle on, the, on being carried out in human history against Israel or whoever else it might be, is God endorsing war because it's the wrath of God. So he's doing this. It's like, no, that's not the way God works. As we said earlier, Jesus is riding a white horse, which is a war horse, but the blood in his garments is certainly his own blood. Hmm. And I think it's certain. And I, I know there's a dispute on that. And the sword, the only weapon he has is the sword coming out of his mouth. He speaks. And as we go through the book of Revelation, then we'll see at least two more times that the war occurs, chapter 19, 17 through 21, and then chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. There's actually not a war described. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It's not actually describing a war in this climactic Armageddon sense of popular understanding. It's a war against God's people that the devil's been waging since the beginning. So I guess I'd say, yeah, go back to the podcast in Revelation 12, uh, just refresh yourself a little bit. That's what's going on. And then thir and mm. obviously 13 as well. Yeah. Okay. As we finish up here, any thoughts you have in terms of, of what's going on here? What really is hitting me is we oftentimes are crying out for justice to be upheld. God, when are you going to make this right? Yeah. It's the how yeah, long, yeah. oh Lord, right? Which is that's yeah. something obviously God's people throughout scripture do. And so there's that, that's something we should continue to do. We should never allow for status quo. We, we talked earlier, like I, I'm dealing with some like health issue stuff right now. And yeah, it's like, how yeah. will, like in the new heavens, right. new earth, I don't have to worry about not eating God's oranges and tomatoes in the new Jerusalem, because that citrus isn't going to jack up my stomach. Right. <laughs> you, um, you couldn't go to the cattle though. Could you? It, there's gonna yeah. Be I don't think we're eating. I don't think we're eating beef in the new Jerusalem. Come on. There's Texas still pepperoni, but it, it, it's got to be some kind of that's not kosher. manufactured uh, pepperoni. Yeah. It's, it's on the tree of life. It's pepperoni pizza. And I, yeah, it's I, pepperoni. I, okay. I've been there. I've seen it. You maybe. Anyway, I'm not touching this. The ADD is going crazy. But <laughs> it is. The, the one thing that while we long for that day, yeah. there's also we, we need to stay sober minded about the people who are going to face judgment now. And how quick are we to want to seek justice and 
forget that there's actually real people behind yeah yeah the the wrath of god whatever that might look like there's people yeah, who will yeah. face judgment and those are real people it's oh. that thing that breaks our hearts and it's like, okay this is necessary I, i'm going to induce discipline so you could uh create self-discipline and, and yeah. i do this because i love you and right. how often is that our posture towards the world are right. we just hoping that they'll get theirs exactly yeah, okay i can't avenge so god will do it or are we actually loving these people and are our hearts breaking exactly. when an Osama bin Laden is announced to be killed yeah. by SEAL Team 6? Okay, justice. But we're also, should yeah. we be broken over that? That he didn't That's come right. to repent of his sin. And so th there just seems exactly. to be that tension exactly. that we should hold. Yep. Uh, and so just Absolutely. reading it through, chapter 15, just really, all these judgment passages just does that for me. It reminds me of, yes, I'm calling out for God to make all things right. However, there's people who are going to be on the wrong side of that. Man, that's Exactly. Yeah, I, I tweeted or posted on Facebook at least after Osama bin Laden. You know, and again, we lived in the Bay Area at the time, right? And yeah. one of the planes that was crashed was people coming to San Francisco. Yeah. And so people in our communities that died uh, as a result of 9-11. And I said, I, I know some of you feel a great relief and a sense of justice, but I'm seeing venom being spread on Facebook and, uh, and social media, like rejoicing. And what does the Muslim world think right now? What's their response? And what about Bin Laden's family? And what about the fact that he can no longer repent? So should we not grieve also mm -hmm. that justice had to be served this way? Okay, true. But he's a human being whom Jesus Christ loved and died for. And now there's no longer the opportunity for him to repent. The other aspect of that would be the same thing that... So what, what I heard you saying, Vinny, was just simply the Beatitudes. And that, that's what you were yeah. saying. We're, yeah. we're blessed are those who weep. We, we weep, mm -hmm. we mourn, and we're struggling with death and poverty and oppression. And that causes us to weep. And then we go to the war in Gaza. Oh, go get them, Israel. They have every right to defend themselves. Okay, true. Maybe that is true. But they don't. But people are going to die. And children, and they're starving to death. And whether this is genocide or not, it's okay. We'll discuss that in the next live stream. But which, by the way, by the time this live stream, th this podcast goes live, we will have done another live stream discussing even more again the issues of justice and the issues of scripture and what does the Bible say? It's like, how can we rejoice in that? So all, like I did this in my classroom, I'm like, I just put a picture of a child up. Look at mm. this child that survived the rubble. Mm. And as soon as you see that, you're like, okay, this has got to stop. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like, oh, well, it can't stop. because It's like, no, it, it, there's a way to make this stop. So, yep, absolutely. All right, hey, thanks, ma'am. Yeah, but next week, 16, read ahead and- yeah. Gosh, buckle up. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll plow through 16 and maybe get through seven bowls. And then, man, good stuff's happened after that. So keep reading, everyone. We'll catch you guys next time. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.